How do you do? The Box Office Pulp Board feels it would be a little unkind to present this podcast without just a word of friendly warning. We're about to unfold a cinematic commentary track, made by a group of men who sought to create a podcast after their own ravings, without reckoning upon God. It is one of the strangest tales ever told. It deals with three great mysteries of the internet, analysis, observation, and deconstruction. I think it will thrill you. It may shock you. It might even horrify you. So if any of you feel you'd not care to subject your nerves to such a strain, now's your chance to... Well, we've warned you. Now, to pause and refresh. For your convenience, we have an attractive refreshment stand in the lobby, with buttered popcorn, golden good and hot from the popper, your favorite candies, wholesome and rich... So delicious, Dr. Pepper. So bright and brisk with a tang and tingle unmatched by any other beverage. Our dwarves are Dr. Pepper at our beverage stand right now. And in return, we fully appreciate this bump and a tragedy. Goomba! Walk tall! Be proud! Go, Goomba! The following movie is rated R. Welcome to Box Office Pulp, your one-stop podcast for movies, madness, moxie, and tonight, Mario Brothers. That's right, this ain't no game. We've got a bop and a tragedy for you based on Nintendo's legendary 1993 flop. Can't wait for all of this fungus. I'm so excited, as you can tell. I'm your host, Cody. Joining me today are my co-hosts, Mike. Say hello, Mike. How different would the reaction to this movie have been if it were specifically advertised as being based on Super Mario Brothers 2? You know, the world may never... If I had a genie, I would use one of the wishes to find out, though. That's that's something I would definitely waste a wish on. Also, say hello to my other co-host, Jamie. Hello, Jamie. You know, guys, uh, due to a devastating childhood injury, I have no choice but to walk the dinosaur. <laughs> I had a friend uh, tell me today they didn't realize Walk the Dinosaur was a real song. They thought it was written just for the Super Mario Brothers movie. <laughs> they, they they didn't know it was a cover. They didn't know like someone actually put this on the radio and had success with it. They thought it was just some bullshit they threw in there to cover the credits. To be fair, that makes more sense than that song actually existing. <laughs> it, that's why I kind of like that song being included with Super Mario Brothers, the movie. This is right before Jurassic Park, <sighs> where the use of dinosaurs in pop culture completely changed. So this <laughs> is the last vestiges of that version of pop culture dinosaurs and how they relate to culture. <laughs> Wait, hold on, hold on. Uh, when did We're Back, a dinosaur story come out? 1993! What a year for dinosaurs! <laughs> Holy shit. Okay. Wow. I'm I'm blowing my own mind here. Oh, I, I'm sorry. I, I got lost in like some nostalgia mind hole for a second there. I got to get out. We got to focus on the Mario Brothers. Folks, in a few moments here, we're going to be playing the movie and talking over top of it. You're welcome to join us if you can find a copy of the Super Mario Brother movie. It's surprisingly tricky to do. There's a really great Umbrella Factory, Umbrella Entertainment, Umbrella Entertainment, Blu-ray of the film. If you can still find it, it might be out of stock by now, out of print. Um, good luck. If not, you can just listen to us talk about it and just imagine 
this movie. You can go find pictures of it online, and that's that's enough. Just look at the toys. Honestly, I think it's easier to find Super Horneo Brothers than this right now. Probably. No, that's been that's been benched once again for other reasons. <laughs> well, folks, uh, before we kick off that commentary, though, you do have to get the official drink ready. Now, in honor of how this movie was slapdashed together through various scripts, what I started with was an honest-to-God good cocktail that a professional made called the Murder Hornet. I took that recipe down, and then... I threw that recipe out and I rewrote it with what ingredients I thought I had. And then when I went to make it today, I threw those out and found the near substitutes that I had in my liquor cabinet and used those instead. So we are now two generations removed from what the proper drink is. I haven't tasted this drink. I call it, I trust the fungus. (laughs) Anyways, the original drink, and I'm going to give you the the setup for the good stuff first, uh, and then we can go back and I'll tell you what I made. The official murder hornet is two ounces of a Japanese gin, uh, one ounce of soju uh, fruit juice, three-fourths of an ounce mushroom honey syrup. So what they did was they would take uh, a quarter cup of metake mushrooms, a half cup of water, and a cup of honey. You're going to boil all those together. Then you're going to emulsify the mushrooms. You're going to let that sit overnight and put it through a fine strainer to give yourself uh, that thin syrup you can easily pour in like a simple syrup and then lastly two dashes of angostura bitters that's the murder hornet that's a very good drink you're gonna love that it's a really great blend of sweet and umami and it's good you're gonna like it my version i didn't have japanese gin so i was gonna use dry gin i didn't have dry gin so instead i have two ounces of empress gin which is a blue gin that changes into a kind of purplish red uh once introduced to citrus it's very floral. Then I was going to use, because I didn't have sozu, a half ounce of lemon and a half ounce of lime juice. Fuck that. Why not be special here? I'm, I instead used uh, three quarters of an ounce of super sour, which is like the name kind of sounds like a very, very sour, clear liquid that kind of takes the place of a citrus. It's like a sweet sour mix. I made the honey mushroom syrup, as we described before, except I didn't have mitake mushrooms. I had shiitake mushrooms. Only difference there. Otherwise, the ratios all stayed the same. And then two dashes of Angostura bitters. I have thrown this into a coupe glass. I'm about to taste this thing right now. It's kind of an interesting red with a little bit of a golden hue around the edges, if you look at the viscosity. It's okay. It's, <laughs> that's as much as I can say. So it's this movie. It's, uh, yeah, like you get a little bit of the gin in there, but it's overpowered because I use too much super sour. A little bit goes a long way. Uh, and you can't tell that the, uh, honey is in there, which is too bad because I drank a little bit of that, uh, honey mushroom sauce before and it was delightful. That shit's going on whatever ha- food I have for the next week. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, Cody. It was only after garnishing the drink with one of the, <clears throat> the one of the remaining shiitake mushrooms that you googled it and realized that, that was a terrible mistake and could have po- poisoned you i still might have so to go along with the theme of the drink of taking the good recipe and substituting it for no reason with my recipe the original garnish called for taking a tablespoon of salt a tablespoon of sugar and a tablespoon of mushroom powder mixing those together and sifting it over the top of the drink for a fine powdery kind of 
aftertaste. Uh, I had nowhere to get mushroom powder. So uh, I, I just threw in a raw shiitake on the top and I'm like, yeah, whatever. It's a mushroom. I should maybe look that up and see if I should eat that raw. And the internet says, no, there's a really good chance you will develop a uh, skin rash if you eat raw shiitake <laughs> mushrooms. So I, I pulled that garnish out. I don't recommend putting mushrooms, just raw mushrooms in your drinks. Uh, that's box office pulp covering their own ass for legal reasons. Go with the tablespoon uh, of salt, sugar, mushroom powder, or don't even put it in a garnish. It's fine. Just throw this in a little uh, chilled coupe glass, and, and there you go. And kids, if you don't feel like making all that, um, I really recommend um, just steeping some mushrooms in hot water for about 60 minutes and making tea out of it, and uh, have a good time. <laughs> Nothing go wrong there. I keep drinking this drink, expecting like one of these sips, I'm just going to get it, and the flavor profile is going to be really good, and it's it's just there. It's not going to happen. It's clean and dirty at the same time as what that drink is. It does look that way. It has that appearance. It's not It's not bad. I, I can drink this and I will drink it, but at no point do I think we can get to a spot where I, I take a sip and I go, yeah, this was worth all the work. <laughs> so it's this movie. So it's really, I made the perfect drink. No. All right. Well, I think that's enough disappointment. Uh, let's move on to, oh, disappointment. The Super Mario Brothers movie. We're making Jamie yeah. very angry by shitting on the Super Mario Brothers movie right now. <laughs> I was yeah. going to ask, once we started going, what the opinion was in the room of the Mario Bros movie. Well, I thought we I, were I, here I to trust a fungus, Cody. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just saw an interview today where Seth Rogen was talking about uh, the Super Mario Brothers movie and how it made him realize as a child, oh, movies can be shitty. <laughs> Like he was in theaters all excited because he loved Mario. And then he saw him and he's like, oh, this was bad. And before that, he didn't have a concept that movies could be bad. <laughs> Which so I think is a little strange. Robin Robin was to many of us. Yes, yes. <laughs> I, 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 don't, I don't hate Super Mario Bros. as much as I make it seem. It's more for comedic effect. Of course. But I am absolutely not in love with this movie either. <laughs> this movie is glorious. By and large, I'm glad it exists because it's so weird. Although I am a little bummed out because it meant that Nintendo sealed their vaults for like 20 years. See, I'm yeah. I'm an outlier here. I'm an absolute fungus head. <laughs> I, <laughs> this was a beloved film from my childhood and has kind of gone on to become more or less like my favorite bad movie. Which, a title that used to belong to Street Fighter the movie, but (laughs) in recent years, I've rethought that, and I don't believe Street Fighter is a bad movie. (laughs) That is a film that knows exactly what it is, exactly what it's doing. Street Fighter is a great comedy. Like, that is a Steven D'Souza action comedy based on a silly, silly video game, (laughs) and it's only trying to be that. This, however, is an absolute train wreck. This is what I love is you get people who say Super Mario Brothers, the movie, like you shouldn't say it's bad because it is a great underrated cyberpunk movie. And I stop and say, you're calling a Super Mario Brothers movie cyberpunk. (laughs) That is where it inherently has gone wrong. I love that there is a cyberpunk Super Mario Brothers movie. That's incredible. That existing is also against the laws of time and space. And how many times have I said over the years, you must always obey the laws of time and space? What if? Okay. New idea for the commentary, folks. We're going to put on Johnny Mnemonic 
and this at the same time, and then we're gonna <laughs> we're gonna dark side of the moon this yeah. moon this thing and see see what happens. Jack uh, me in. <laughs> there'll be no one jacking anyone in tonight. <laughs> Mike, are uh, Mike, are you ready to count us down for the actual commentary proper? I am so ready. I'm I've been looking forward to this all week. Let's do it to it. All right. I'm going to count to three. After I say three, we press play. One, two, three. Go, go production logos. So uh, I love production logos that have just been made in like Movie Maker. <laughs> oh boy, we're going to watch Reboot on DVD. <laughs> Which is coming soon. You'll be able to get Reboot on DVD. Yeah. I have my volume on three, and it still sounds overwhelming. It's a very okay, loud movie. I miss the Hollywood they, Pictures they logo. They want you to uh, hear it. The Hollywood Pictures logo makes me so goddamn nostalgic. Is that very much TriStar? So. Yeah. Oh, hey, the only hey. time we'll ever hear this. <laughs> it's so weird say, that they had iconic songs and stuff, and they're like, fuck, we don't need that. Just put in some chipper, like, comedy music from Sylvester. It'll be fine. As well as say, years and years before it became standard, Super Mario Brothers movie did the thing of, and then we play uh, the the old version of the theme to remind everyone of innocent times before things get real. The, the thing every this. Pirates of the Caribbean trailer would later too. <laughs> I want to talk about this intro for a second, because this is a sign right here something's wrong. The easiest <laughs> home run in the world for a Super Mario movie would be to right just hire the art department from a super mario game and and just do that on the big screen just just do that instead they're like here is some weird point and click adventure graphics from like a (laughs) 1992 cd-rom game it's from dingo pictures it it throws me off and like guys it would be even easier to do it the old way you'd have like fucking 16 bits to work with with the with Dan Castellaneta here as not Mario, it's so weird. Yeah, I didn't even believe it when I looked up on the credits. Like the fuck, they got Homer Simpson to do like this two seconds of narration. This fucking metal logo. I like the metal uh, logo though. I, I oh, it's it great. Do. Okay, I gotta talk for a moment before you launch into your movie facts, Cody, because. I figured this, you'd have something to say about this. This absolutely fascinates me. Okay, in preparation for this, I read the original script, like the original first draft of the very first attempt to bring this to screen, and read uh, detailed synopses of the eight scripts between then and the final production of this movie. Well, I say and, Jesus Christ, but that's not that uncommon. There's a lot of movies that rewrite and rewrite and rewrite. This one's particularly bad, but it's you know. it's bad because all of those rewrites were in the space of like two months. Yeah. Well, the very first script opens like this. This thing I have always assumed like had to be like a last minute rewrite or something because it's so incongruous with both. The rest of the movie and anything you'd expect from a Mario movie, this is how every single draft opens. Even the original, which is a lighthearted family fantasy movie. And I should point out, too, if you have the uh, Umbrella version of this movie, one of the special features is a work print of the film. And it starts with this because they they didn't have like the special effects for the opening with, you know, the 
shitty CGI dinosaurs or not CGI computer dinosaurs. The difference is though, they're using temp tracks and it's all like Danny Elfman, Tim Burton songs. Mm-hmm. So there's just like an epic sweep of Batman music as this dark <laughs> mystery thing is happening. And it puts you in like a fucking mood. Like this is some dark shit happening. <laughs> like they really lighten it up for the actual production. <laughs> Uh, that work print is fascinating to watch because it's it's not in perfect condition. Uh, apparently, there is a cleaned up and even further extended edition somewhere on the Internet Archive you can find. Uh, but being able to watch essentially a rough version of the movie with another, I don't remember how much it is, maybe eight minutes of random bits thrown in throughout the entire thing that radically alter the tone. It's, it's fascinating to see <laughs> uh, what could have been and what was. Uh, I, I, like I was saying uh, to the two of you earlier today, it's it's as if every version of this movie, but the final one they made, could have been quite good. <laughs> it's like e- even that extended version, which is still a train wreck of a movie. Like you can see, like okay, a lot of stuff that's very random and inexplicable. The theatrical cut does have a purpose. There, there, there actually were character beats in this movie at one point. Oh, yeah. Although there, there's still weird things that are, and this is common for every movie, but like actors making a backstory that they just had to do on their own because they needed something to grasp onto. Like John Leguizamo says, well, I don't have a mustache because I'm rebelling against my family. And part of what he mentions is like the opening pan we just saw a second ago. They show the Mario's father who also has a mustache and his brother Mario has a mustache. So Leguizamo decided I will not have one, which I, I don't know if that's true or he just couldn't grow a mustache. So he needed to like find a justification <laughs> inside the character. Uh, Mar- Luigi not having a mustache comes from the fairly early drafts. Since they knew pretty, or it's interesting, like pretty much from the first screenplay onward, they settled into the idea that Luigi is the actual traditional hero of the movie with the one with the romantic lead where Mario is, you know, the grouchy Danny DeVito older brother type. They did try and get DeVito, didn't they, at one point for the role, but it didn't work out? Pretty much, pretty much everyone you'd think would be Mario was asked, and also every leading man in Hollywood. <laughs> they wanted Ellen. Keaton for Bowser. This is, I believe, the famous scene where uh, Leguizamo accidentally broke Hopkins' arm <laughs> because he had been drinking in his trailer because things were no, just no, going I think so that poorly. Was with, uh, the scene with the police car later, I think. I th- it might be this van. I think I'm pretty they sure they were the drunk van. in most. They scenes, were drunk. So. No, they were yeah. drunk in a lot of the scenes. But from what I remember of him telling this was they hopped in the van. They're told they had to get in here, and he said, "I'm a bad stunt driver to begin with." But he hit the accelerator too hard, and then he hit the brakes, and it slammed that door shut on the far side that you see is open right now on his hand, and essentially broke it. So they had to put on that flesh cast. Anyways, uh, let's let's get some of these movie facts out of the way. So there's a lot to talk about here. Run through them. So many writers. Just so many writers. Uh, this was directed by Rocky Morton and Annabelle Jankel. Uh, they're probably most well known for creating Max Headroom. You know, that property that definitely screams, make a Super Mario Brothers. <laughs> uh, our screenplay is by Parker Bennett, Terry Ronte, uh, and 
Ed Solomon, of all people. Yeah, Ed Solomon. Uh, you know him from a long string of blockbusters like the Bill and Ted trilogy, the Now You See Me movies, and the Men in Black films. Like, yeah, Ed Solomon wrote your childhood. Good, yeah, uh, screenwriter. So he's he's in the mix. Our cinematography is by Dean Semler. Semler is an Australian cinematographer with some really great films under his belt. You know his stuff. Uh, he's done the Mad Max some of the Mad Max films, Mad Max 2, uh, Beyond Thunderdome. He also did Razorback, Waterworld, Apocalypto, 2012, Secretariat. Uh, and he also served as the second unit director for this picture. Our cast, boy, uh, they they really did a great job on this cast. I will for sure give them that. Bob Hoskins, he's a legend. Uh, fuck, you know him from a million things. Who Framed Roger Rabbit, Brazil, uh, Hook, The Wall. God. I can't imagine anyone else being, yeah, I can't imagine anyone else being Mario though after him. Like he just did such a wonderful job, even though you could tell he didn't enjoy being in the picture that much. He was professional about the work. Um, John Leguizamo as Luigi. Oh man. He's having a little bit of a career renaissance just because, uh, Violent Night and the Menu were both surprisingly big hits. Uh, but also, you know, he's in the John Wick doing some character acting stuff. He's a lot of fun in Land of the Dead. More iconic voice work than I remembered. He's in Tainai, he's in Encanto, he's in Ice Age. Like, just one of those roles would probably be enough for people to go, wow, that guy is a really professional, cool voice actor. We should get more shit. Uh, Award-winning, one-man show. Uh, He wrote a graphic novel a while back, has a music career. I have the biggest crush on John Kusamo. He He really got me. Romeo and Juliet. Romeo and Juliet is where he got me as a kid. Like, oh, man, just... Fucking Tibble, what a what a role. Uh man crushes on John Oguzamo's side. Let's talk about Dennis Hopper as Koopa. Jesus Christ, we got another Land of the Dead alumni. Uh too many great roles to really list, but uh, let's just talk about Blue Velvet, Speed, Easy Rider, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, which I wish he had chainsaws in this movie. <laughs> uh Samantha Mathis is another one of those people that I didn't realize was in some other pretty famous stuff until going back and looking at her filmography besides this movie. Uh, she's the voice of Krista, the fairy in Ferngully, the last rainforest. Uh, Maria Castle in the 2004 Punisher. That will forever be the other thing she's in for me. Yeah. <laughs> I saw that in my jaw fell. I was like, what? And uh, she even had a small role in American Psycho. So she's got some cool stuff going on. Uh, and and lastly, there there's obviously like I should mention Spike and Iggy, but I got to keep rolling. We got too many movie facts. Mm-hmm. Uh, Fiona Shaw as Lena in this one. An entire generation of fans know her as Petuna Dursley in the Harry Potter films. So it's just it's very weird to see her pop up in this thing. As a film, oh, lastly, tell. yeah. Um, some last mentions. Uh, Lance Henriksen makes a cameo at the end as the king. Spoilers. Uh, Frank Welker provides the voice of Yoshi and the Goombas which is really fun. And we already covered this. Uh, the narrator is uh, Dan Castaneda. So boy, jam packed with talent in this movie. Uh, our music is by Alan Silvestri, uh, who did Predator, Overboard, Mac and Me, Back to the Future, Fern Gully, another Fern Gully, uh, Forrest Gump, The Avengers, a million other huge movies. This guy is, you've heard like 40 of his scores. Uh, our editing is by Mark Goldblatt. We won a Saturn Award for editing Piranha in 1978. Uh, worked pretty closely with Dante and a few of his other films like The Howling and Inner Space. Uh, 
I really appreciate that he did Piranha and Humanoids from the Deep. He was the editor on Halloween 2, uh, The Terminator and Terminator 2 Judgment Day, Commando, Rambo First Blood Part 2, True Lies, Hollow Man, Nightbreed, Predator 2, a bunch of other really cool genre stuff. Uh, that's my favorite part about going through these movie facts. If I just read them to you blind and tell you it's a Super Mario Brothers movie, you would assume, <laughs> Jesus Christ, the amount of talent they have assembled for this thing. It must come out good. Oh, it's like Hodorowski's Dune. <laughs> Uh, so the movie was released May 28th, 1993. It was budgeted at around $48 million. They were looking to do it for less, and they had to bring in Disney for distribution through one of their other channels uh, just to get the rest of the money to kind of cover how much this was costing. And in the end, the box office worldwide came out to $38.9 million. So it was, it was a big money-losing deal for everyone involved. And uh, so bad, Nintendo basically just said, we're, we're not going to do movies until, well, now we've got a new Super Mario cartoon coming out to theaters uh, as we speak. It's already out, actually. Spoilers uh, for time. This movie specifically is why Nintendo went control crazy. So control crazy that whenever they were developing a Legend of Zelda TV show years later, they canceled it when people found out it existed. The same with uh, their Star Fox show for Netflix. Uh, it was leaked, so they went, no, fuck it, you don't get it now. Which seems insane to me, but I'm not Nintendo. Jamie, in any of the other drafts for this movie, was Princess Daisy ever Princess Peach? No. Um, Peach didn't in exist the, yet. Yeah. It, <laughs> there's a lot of in Japan and in America talk when you go <laughs> into these things with localization, but if I remember correctly, uh, in Japan, uh, Peach was always Peach. <clears throat> it's changed to Toadstool in America to avoid confusion. She wasn't called Peach in an American game until Mario 64. So in the original know. script, she was Princess Hildy. Uh, from the second draft onwards, they changed her to Daisy from uh, Super Mario Land, uh, just because... <laughs> Uh, that was the only first name to a princess they had, and they were working pretty much without any input from Nintendo, so all they had lore-wise to base any of this shit on was what was in the American version of the games and what was in the Super Mario Brothers Super Show cartoons. Because mm -hmm. uh, it's crazy how in the first, I believe, second draft... Yoshi shows up and isn't called Yoshi. He's called Mario <laughs> Jr. Because all uh, they had was the just the fact that Mario rides a dinosaur in Super Mario World because it hadn't been released in America yet. So weird. But, but there's still like I should a Mario mention. Golf reference in here. Yeah. There's well, a Mario Kart like, for Mario Kart. Well, that's what I was about to say, like the Mario Kart thing. I wonder if that was, you know, it was technically, it was out pretty close to when this came out. I wonder if the two inspired each other, or this would have come out slightly before, I suppose, in America. But if you look at the lore of Mario, which has never been super deep, it's not like you need to pause, and if I don't collect all of the audio logs, I'll never understand Bioshock. It's not <laughs> one of those game series. But to this point, you got to remember, this movie came out in 1993, right? Before that, we had Super Mario Bros. 85. Super Mario Bros. 2, 88. Super Mario Bros. 3, also 88. Uh, Super Mario Land, 89. Super Mario World, 1990. And Super Mario Land 2, 6 Golden Coins. Uh, 
Uh, I didn't write the date for that. I apologize. But that, that was, that's what they had to work off of. And it sounds like a lot, but those games are just platformers. There, there's not much lore in there. There's not a lot of in-depth stuff you're getting out of any of those. You get some colorful characters and locations. And I don't know, maybe there was more in the game manuals back then that explained what was going on in this universe. But there was stuff in the game manuals, but yeah, it was, it, it wasn't till later that Nintendo buckled down and really built out the lore. Like now there's, you know, the Mario wiki and there's like Mario encyclopedias and shit. <laughs> but at the time, really the most that existed outside of the manuals was the Super Mario Super Show. Right. And I wonder how much they were fighting against that show when they first started, which would explain why you hired the, the creators of Max Headroom. You know, because the, 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 the show wasn't, particularly well-renowned was it like it, it obviously lasted it, more than the season it was popular so it has, yeah yeah they lasted it way more seasons than you'd think yeah but it didn't scream cinematic so i could see them saying okay we need something different to stand apart from that silly thing we did before oh yeah uh, well, this was at a time too where it was well it's a movie now so this is like the actual version of it versus the thing that it's based on which you got with anything based on cartoons and and stuff like that. I mean, even to a degree, like we love, like I love the Adams Family movie. But if you stop and think about it for a second, up until like the last <laughs> minute, that was a version where, and then Fester was replaced with just a dude, a hitman. Yeah, like that. It's it, like there's a lot of so fucking. <laughs> There's a lot of um such a fucking weird ass movie. Um <laughs> especially post Batman. Oh, where absolutely. right. Yeah, that changed people, everything after it and the the tone, you know, that was and, the way to do it. Yeah, and people took things a little uh, uh, studios took things a little bit differently where Batman technically was just Batman, but to them it was oh, that's like the real like cinema is completely different so you don't just translate it exactly hold on i so want to point out this is that. a beautiful shot like this is this is so well done like is it's a great interesting composition a well movie. Movie. this is a very well-directed movie i mean some of the shit in, in dino hatton is is beautiful. the set design is unimpeachable everyone recognizes that it's fucking outstanding and you're never going to get that kind of production work again like it would be too expensive to do it that way anymore it People tell you no, you got to do with CGI. So I get it that you got to appreciate this because it's basically a dinosaur; it doesn't exist anymore. Uh, also, before we get too far away from her kidnapping, real quick, I just want to say, if you like me, have been baffled as to why Mario's girlfriend Daniela is in this movie. <laughs> She's supposed to be Scapelli's sister. And whenever what? they rescue what? her, Scapelli forgives the debt that Mario owes him in pretty much every draft other than the one they shot. Scapelli, just... Scapelli's point in every <laughs> single draft is to be r some kind of in-law to Mario who's holding a debt above him. In most drafts, Mario's the one who floods the tunnels because... Scapelli is blackmailing him. That uh, Scapelli okay, and Daniela have a reason to be in the movie. 
all of that really makes a lot more sense than what we ended up with. In this one, he gets turned into, spoilers, a, a, a chimpanzee, and then they just kind of forget about him. Monkey. That was Does that ever a- get reversed? Is he just permanently a monkey? Oh, I, I, as far as I know, I believe so. Um, That was actually a last-minute addition by Ed Solomon. Ed, Ed Solomon uh, both write, co-writing a draft and doing touch-ups on the shooting script is the reason this movie has jokes that are actually funny in it. <laughs> I'm not surprised. Because the third act super, super changed. Um, but before we get too far away from, like, the Mario lore... <laughs> um what i do think is kind of cool about this movie like from a historical standpoint um there's this and then there's the there's an uh anime film released in japan um that is probably the, the earliest mario adaption and that's I just also found out about just, that yesterday i didn't know that, that existed until now it only like recently leaked online and available to like properly watch it but that is also like even more so completely making up the lore as it goes because there was literally none. And this stands as really like the last thing of a version of Mario that doesn't exist. Like it, Mario being a plumber, like, like kind of just comes from the super show and carried over to here. But that's not actually part of the lore. Like, part of the lore now, the official lore, is that Mario and Luigi are from the Mushroom Kingdom instead of being from Brooklyn and and uh, transported to the Mushroom Kingdom, and that they were plumbers. And I wonder, too, if the inspiration uh, carries out into even stuff like Mario 64, because through that game, right, you're, you're in the castle, and then you kind of jump through a dimensional portal that dissolves you, and you go into... Yeah. I have All always been convinced that was borrowed from here. I feel like as much as people maybe don't want to admit it because the show wasn't successful, that seems like it probably came from here, because, yeah, you did jump worlds in the previous Mario games, but it didn't feel like different dimensions. You would pop into a pipe, right, and it would just spit you out into a different section of the Morrow universe. I don't know. Can't prove anything, but it's my, my theory. This is both a terrible effect and also really, really fucking weird and off-putting. <laughs> it's disturbing, yeah. A little bit, yeah. This costs $14 million. Daisy. So it, it is, in reading the different drafts, it's amazing seeing the amount of rigmarole they end up going to, go, going through just to get Daisy, Mario, and Luigi into this fucking kingdom. We're in the first draft, <laughs> Koopa just shows up at Daisy's job, says, I'm a friend of your parents, and then walks her into a reptile-themed restaurant where there's a warp pipe in the back. Uh, in the back kitchen (laughs) and then he pushes her down that and then mario and luigi uh who are running from the mob at the time run in there and jump after them because we should we should point out we are almost 23 minutes in this movie uh like 22 50 right now there's an hour 22 left that's a pretty big chunk for them to basically just be doing setup and it's not like new york really matters that much in this version Oh no, hell from Spawn. <laughs> <Wanda>. <laughs> uh, 
Uh, so on the Umbrella DVD, it's this, Mario just following through the dimensional chasm, but set to Walk the Dinosaur. Uh, and I, I was writing notes, so I left that DVD menu up for too long, just hearing that stupid beat <laughs> that play incredible. over and over. <laughs> Everybody walk the dinosaur. I won't spoil it just yet, but in earlier scripts, that weird Doctor Strange dimension comes back in a big way in the third act. Ooh. <laughs> Do they fight Dormammu? You're not that far off. <laughs> All right, so All right. We're, we're about to wander into... Just an astounding set. The production design was for like from the same team that did Blade Runner, which isn't a surprise when you see it. The thing that throws me is they didn't have a sound studio that was big enough to hold everything they wanted to build. So they went out and found a giant abandoned cement factory and built the set around that. So everything like is just s- there. Like this isn't a series of like interconnected sets. They just made a Dino Hatton. Yeah. And they, they like were limited to what they could do, right? Because you can't move those pillars you can see running through this <laughs> the city. Those don't go anywhere. They hold up the building. So they just had to design around them. Uh, I, they said, what? I'm forgetting the numbers, but the, the set was something like 90 feet tall they had to work with. And, you know, over like a fo- football field long. So they, they literally basically stuck New York into this giant warehouse and just hey, filmed like all a- those scenes throughout this insane design. <laughs> There's like this amazing crane shot later, like where you go from like the street up into Koopa Tower, and yeah, it's just a practical shot because they just built a city, so you could just do a crane shot up into a, into <laughs> another building where Dennis Hopper's walking around. And Koopa's Apparently office you is could... just the office that's in the cement factory that just looks out onto everything. <laughs> <laughs> and apparently, you could quote unquote fry an egg on the floor. Hmm. Good. <laughs> it was so goddamn hot in there. Great working dish. Well, I suppose, yeah. All that cement and then studio lights stuck into that thing and all the fucking neon they probably have running. Meanwhile, Rocky Morton's pouring hot coffee onto extras. That's a story worth examining. Um, for what it's worth, I think he did scold that guy. I think he threw hot coffee on that dude and just wanted to backtrack. But <laughs> his version of the story was there was an extra who didn't look dirty enough. So he took a cup of coffee and just dumped it on him thinking that will, that will dirty him up. And the coffee was scalding hot and burned the extra. Uh, Rocky claims that it wasn't that hot. And then as soon as he complained that it was hot, I threw some cold water on him. So it's fine. I, uh, I feel like the director scalded an extra and then got mad that people were upset about him scalding an extra. Nobody mm, ever yeah. has a really good reason to pour coffee on the head of somebody who works for them. Also, not even I a good was way to make a guy look dirty. This cup of coffee was hot, <laughs> <laughs> right? I I just feel like you could go find some dirt outside the abandoned factory. There's got to be a little dirt somewhere outside the premises. You could just rub that on a dude. That'd probably look better than coffee. God, so going- enter Dennis Hopper giving one of my favorite <laughs> supervillain performances of the nineties. Just Hopper being the only one who knows that he's in Super Mario Brothers, the movie, so he might as well make the best of it. It's very weird, though, because, okay, look back at the villains. They probably have even less stuff going for them than anything else in the story, right? Bowser in the first couple of games just shows up and is a mini boss. You, You don't really get a lot of personality or fun facts about him or deep lore. 
And so Hopper just has to come in here and be like, okay, what fuck, what are we doing? So he does these weird little touches, like he puts his hands in front of him, kind of clawed up like he's supposed to be doing a T-Rex arms. He does all this germaphobe stuff and just is like a primate. Ugh. I, I feel like he is really giving a lot to something he was frustrated with because there were several examples of him apparently freaking out that scripts weren't ready and just tearing people apart for hours because it was unprofessional of them to not have scripts for the actors. Oh, God, the stories about the scripting process of this movie. Like, by the time they were shooting, this basically became Stab 3. The final two scripts that Ed Solomon touched up on set were called the Rainbow Scripts, because the pages were multicolored, depending on, like, what kind of rewrite they were and at what stage of production. So they were Ugh. just coming to set every day and shooting stuff. I Some of the actors were talking about this in interviews, and they said, yeah, we'd get the scripts in the morning, and we would just literally throw them away because we knew we would get a brand new script by the time it was time to shoot. So it didn't pay to even remember the lines they had written that morning. As far as Des Hopper goes as well, I think it's important to point out that when when Hopper signed on to this movie, it wasn't a comedy and Koopa was a scary villain who threw people out of windows and shit. Yeah, all of these actors signed on to a very different movie than what they got. Although... Hopkins, like, he he signed on to it because the kids knew the character, and so he's like, oh, all right, if they think it's fun, I'll I'll do one for them. Well, I've heard Hopkins tell two different versions of that story. Uh, I've heard Hoskins say that, and also that he just signed on to the movie because it, it was a cool, it, his agent had told him it was a cool sci-fi script, and it wasn't until <laughs> after the paperwork he was talking to his kids and said, oh, I'm in this thing called Super Mario Brothers. And then they showed him the game and he immediately tried to get out of it. (laughs) Hoskins just, no, what have I done? Little did he know it would get worse. Bloody hell. As as for Bertha here, another character who's just kind of here for no particular reason. Uh, In most of the original drafts, she's a police officer who takes the rock off of Daisy as soon as she gets in. Oh. Which makes her role make a lot more sense. Like, she's the one who books them and everything, tying it into the police segment later. (laughs) So there are a lot of, like, phantom characters in this final script that are composites of other characters or are decomposited composite characters that were broken back up into separate people at later on later drafts. See, my theory was always she was supposed to be like Bowsette. Yeah, I, I assume she was one of the villain characters just like, how do we make this a human? Uh, speaking uh, of weird translations, here's our toad. Mojo Nixon, a legend. Someone explain this. Explain this version of Toad. I can, I can. Go, Jamie, go. Okay, so in every version of these scripts, Toad is the third lead character. Like, he's the Mario Brothers assistant. And in the original draft... Uh, that's still, like, fantasy-focused. He's basically Benny from The Mummy. 
Like he's this <laughs> sleazy thief who's constantly betraying the Mario brothers and is like informing on Koopa for them and everything. And is very like cartoonishly evil. Uh, that gets softened and softened in the later drafts when it goes to sci-fi where he's a chameleon character who's like, uh, a junk rat type scavenger dude, like, give me your mushrooms, <laughs> which then gets softened further into he's a street musician who helps out the guys, but is still like uh, a reptile scavenger dude, which then gets softened further when he's combined with a second character who is a heroic Goomba who takes pity on Princess C. <laughs> So, yeah, you're basically seeing, like, a copy of a copy of a copy of a character who was combined with another character's storyline. I like how <laughs> none of that explained why he's just a dude. Uh, budget. Uh, is yeah, which is also why he gets turned into a Goomba. They couldn't pay the actor anymore. I, mo- we need to point out for a second, though, games, that that police like, sergeant who's booking them just had, like, a hooker's high heel balancing <laughs> on his shoulder the entire time. Just grinding against him, and no one pays any attention to it. It's also pointed to uh, important to point out that there's one whole draft where Toad has his name changed to Lemmy because he was going to be played by Lemmy. <laughs> what? What? I no. did not know this. Jamie, you're fucking making happen? things up. I don't think. Like, I think it was one of those J- things where they thought they could get Lemmy. They Not also like they had mock-ups as Schwarzenegger as Mario, so, you know, they they were deluded. But like, imagine I, everything Toad does in this movie, but it's Lemmy. Oh yeah, man, he's been devolved. He's been devolved into fungus. If you devolved Lemmy, he would be a much cooler looking Goomba. <laughs> but I just love that their trade-off for that was we can't get Lemmy, so we're getting Mojo Nixon. <laughs> who is also cool, but not even the same type of dude. <laughs> Which, God, if there's a, one of the big sins of this movie is we do not get nearly enough of Mojo Nixon as Toad giving ex- giving exposition on quantum physics. <laughs> Let me tell you about the universes. He <laughs> seems like a great character that we've been robbed of. He's the best gambit we ever got. And I'm pretty sure even in the extended cuts of the movie, he does not get a lot of extra stuff to do as Toad. Maybe like a couple of extended bits as a Goomba, like a sympathetic Goomba. But I think this was pretty much it from all of filming. Like, uh, that's the role. You get three scenes. I was like, God, Nixon's delivery of, eh, he's been de-evolved into fungus. <laughs> Anyways, like that are why I love this movie. <laughs> now, as you pointed out, Jamie, it's it's amazing how much of the movie's identity is really shaped around them just being in an old factory. Because this this office, I'm sure it was just like the office down on the floor, so the manager could sit there and oversee people. Uh, the prison cell, not the one we were just at, but the one that had the princesses or the other kidnapped woman. You can just see all the concrete around that. They barely dressed it. They threw in a couple of things, but it's more or less just a concrete bunker from the original factory. It it works in the movie's favor. It makes it incredibly oppressive. Oh, yeah. That brutalism goes a long way to kind of 
exemplify Koopa as a leader. You can make the environment speak it for you. And it gives everything a nice unity to it because it's all tied together with that same concrete look under all the other shit. Uh, also, Larry Lazard pops up uh, about halfway through the scripting process. And this is originally supposed to be Koopa's introduction. So it's actually a reveal whenever he's Koopa at the end, which makes the scene it- make so much more sense, right? It does seem very silly that he gains their trust to immediately flip the switch when they don't answer his first question. Like, why did you go through all this hassle lying to them if you're immediately going to break character? Yeah, when the scene first pops up in the scripts, it's also with Daisy and not the Mario Brothers. So again, a a little more sensical there. Ah. All right, so... uh, one, I expected my cocktail to probably not be great. Two, uh, I am currently on a sport rotation at work. So one drink's the limit, can't get buzzed, which meant I had to have a backup drink. And so I found this in the grocery store and I'm like, yep, yeah, this serves a purpose. It is toxic waste, slime liquor, sour strawberry soda. And uh, boy, this seems like the right thing to be drinking during the Mario Bros movie. <laughs> <laughs> About to pop the lid on that. Cretaceous. That's uh, not as sour as I thought. And it tastes flat. Not a good soda. Oh, Jesus. Oh, God. What are they doing, my boy Toad? So, in uh, the work print version of this, after they devolve Toad, there's a guard that sneezes and Bowser gets pissed about it. So they throw him into the devolution chamber and they reduce him to slime. You will notice the slime on the floor later when Bowser kind of slips on it and the Mario brothers throw him into the chair. That's all been cut from the movie. It's also really rich. horrifying. It drove me crazy as a kid because it's in the making of, but not in the movie. Yeah. Why is there slime here? Um, also, this is terrifying. This freaked me out as a kid that our good guy Toad was just morphed into this horrific, weird little head man. <laughs> the but de-evolution is such a silly idea, but so cool. <laughs> like, I, 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 it frustrates me that this is the one, uh, the one franchise to to do this as a gimmick. It just makes me happy how how much Koopa loves the goombas <laughs> he's so amused Be proud koopa troopa again i don't want to live in a world without walk tall be proud go goomba <laughs> <laughs> also <laughs> hopper announcing his own background t-rex the lizard king like he's just <laughs> the fucking line delivery on that there, there's guys who would have just taken this paycheck and rolled. Uh, yeah, you can see like the slime on the chair there for a second. It's on the floor when these guards slip around. It All just makes it look cut. like the Goomba shit before he walked. It did. Yeah, <laughs> like he threw up everywhere. Uh, also, in the extended cut, uh, it, it's not explained well because the effects aren't completed. But he goes into the chair slightly longer, uh, and there's a moment where they go to check on Koopa after he comes down. His eyes do this thing. Obviously, not the work prints. They were no effects. Uh, but the guards go to check on him and they stare at him for a long time like something horrible has happened to Koopa. 
and they won't explain to Cooper what happened. So he just starts screaming at them, Wah! and then the scene basically ends. So I, I don't know if they had planned at some point to maybe CGI up his look a little bit more for the rest of the movie, and that idea got dropped. Well, in most of the previous drafts, Koopa's slow transformation into a more uh, primal version of himself is, like, his entire thing. Especially in, like, the darker, like, hard PG-13 draft. So he's, he's supposed to be, like, liz- there's supposed to be a lizardification that's going on throughout the whole movie. Yeah, uh, it, it the, definitely, the way it is now, it feels like a drop bit. Yeah, I mean, that's why it always feels like he's about to have a final transformation and then doesn't. Like, the, the <laughs> I mean, just to get into this for a second, is the original ending of the movie when they actually go to Earth is for more than five seconds in a gravel pit. <laughs> is Koopa actually transforms and climbs the Brooklyn Bridge and... Mario fights him on the Brooklyn Bridge and he's like gigantic and shit and I think like he has a he has a Yoshi tongue doesn't he I think so yeah and he like eats the bomb or whatever and yeah that'd been more satisfying because the bomb here is a lot of great build up with people like oh gosh bomb and they're freaking out so it gives the impression this is gonna be major that long build up of it walking around the city and then it goes off and it basically just knocks Koopa into a tank like it doesn't even kill him, doesn't stop him, it just kind of knocks him across the stage for a second. It really doesn't have a purpose in the plot. Oh god, the uh, the whole uh, finale with Koopa is like in the script, out of the script, in the script, out of the script. When uh, Solomon uh, writes his draft, Koopa's de-evolved off-screen, and a- as just a joke, it cuts to Koopa and he's Yoshi. <laughs> Which I am convinced is in there entirely to cover their ass if the other Yoshi stuff didn't work. So it's like, okay, we have a use for the fucking puppet we made. (laughs) Didn't this movie start production like 20 million in the hole because much like Superman Returns, it was every single script was already counted towards the budget? Yeah, pretty much. Yep. They, They wasted millions before they settled on anything to start production. Which is part of why they ran over, part of why they needed Disney's help to finish it. Which means um, legally, this is all. This also counts as the Rain Man script. Was <laughs> <laughs> um, so one thing that never occurred to me till recently because I have a small brain. Uh, right, this is supposed Ooh. to be an alternate dimension split off of ours where the dinosaurs lived, which meant they didn't have fossil fuels, which is why <laughs> their cars don't have gasoline. That's why they're hooked up like bumper cars to an electrical grid. I'm not sure where they're getting the electricity from, but. They don't have oil to, to burn, which is why the cars are stupid. There's a lot of thought that went into this, which amuses me. Well, yeah, if you listen to the guys talking about the production design, it's bananas. They, they, they had so much thought that went into everything and how they could tie it into the game. Like, oh, okay, so this is how a coin box could work in this world from the game and they really had it thought out. You don't see most of those details or they're passed by so quick they don't have time to expand on them so the audience could ever understand. But well, the people what, making it did take the time to plan out all that shit. Well, what kept happening was kept, they kept developing drafts that would strip out all of the video game stuff to make this pretty much just an, an independent IP. And then the next person writing w- would then overcorrect by throwing in lots of <laughs> easter eggs 
and then they'd get taken out and then they'd get put back again. <laughs> so okay, you I end up with like say, this crazy mis- mishmash. As an action scene, it's pretty cool. We have cars that are just spitting sparks and driving through fireballs. It's pretty this cool. This shit is about. awesome. It's pretty cool. This is delightful. But yeah, yeah scenes like this like, are where I point to the screen and go, "Okay, how bad is this movie?" <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I would say again, I enjoy a lot of this movie. I would not call it good. So I, I would compare guilty pleasures, but I recognize that I don't think this is particularly the movie it could have been. But there are spots you can enjoy. I compare this a lot to Bram Stoker's Dracula for me. It's like, I'm reluctant to call it good, but it's such a great train wreck. I can't say that. It's not so much imagination. It's just wrong. I have never understood why people talk about Bram Stoker's Dracula being awful. Because there are people that talk about it like it's just the biggest piece of shit. I'm like, I don't see it. I think maybe some of the acting's obviously a little stilted. Keanu gets shit for a good reason. But I don't know, from like a production design point and story point, like I'm on board with everything it's doing. I don't see a lot of shit where I'm like, but that's a mistake, rookie. Ugh. I don't know. I don't I, think I don't people see get really the hung up that on people have Keanu. on it. I I think that's true too. And it is odd. Like I love Ram Stoker's Dragon. It's fucking odd, but oh, I, sure. I, I would say it is a very good movie. As long as we're talking nice things, we cover this a little bit, but I think the chemistry between most of the groups of actors is phenomenal. Like the Spike and Iggy stuff, I don't think the comedy always lands, but they're doing everything they can with a script I'm sure was in so much flux they really didn't have much to do as sidekick bad guys. Most of Spike and Iggy stuff is completely improv. Improvised, yeah. They made it up on their own. They were like, we wrote a scene, and the director's like, all right, cool, let's see it. So that's good. Obviously, the stuff with Mario and Luigi... Hoskins and Leguizamo's chemistry makes the movie. Like, this would be unwatchable without them. Exactly. Yeah, so, fantastic. Hopper, like I said, clearly he was pissed off behind the scenes about how the movie's coming along, but you can't see in the performance. And like Jamie said, he knows what the movie is, even if the script doesn't know it yet. And he's, he's just hamming it up. Which is fine for this weird jam up of a movie it would be very weird if he was a serious dark frank booth over the top villain this has to be a different top i don't like seeing lena over here serving emma frost energy Let's see, what are we, about the halfway mark here? It's it's strange, too, because the movie, I, I I saw one of the, I can't remember if it was a screenwriter or one of the directors saying, it's basically ended up being Star Wars. Like, it's just kind of the plot of Star Wars reiterated, but this time it's with plumbers instead of the Force. I don't know, because you look at it, it's not super difficult. You have people learning about a new dimension. There's one MacGuffin they have to trace, it's... You know, the the meteorite bit. You get a car chase in there. I don't know. It feels like I'm surprised this movie's an hour 40 plus because it doesn't seem like that much truly happens to me. They really took it's like they started from, okay, here's the base, which is very simple. 
you know, two plumbers get transported into another world. There's a there's a princess that needs to be saved. Okay, simple. And then they added stupid on top of all of it. <laughs> there's eccentricities that really make it feel larger than it is, and they they all take up just a couple of seconds at a time, and it builds up to being something much longer. <laughs> like so, the Mushroom it, King being like an actual living sentient fungus that they have to explain. Oh, it's essentially the forest, right? Last minute thing. The fungus is the force in this movie. Like, if you trust in it and believe in it and, and hold out for it, it'll save you. Okay, fucking weird. Also, I just want to say, Iggy and Spike getting evolved so they're smarter is one of my, maybe one of my favorite plot points in any movie ever. And it was <laughs> okay. their idea, which is what I love. I like uh, that they're just doing the scarecrow from The Wizard of Oz at the end of the film where he starts talking about hypotenuses. <laughs> um, it... Solomon's addition that ended up not making it into the final movie was that Iggy and Spike should be British. And when they're stupid, they're cockney. When they become smart, <laughs> they they speak posh. That's awesome. And instead of wearing, uh, wearing scarves and sunglasses, they wear ascots and monocles. <laughs> but no, they would have lost the British market. Actually, um, before we go any further, if you guys didn't mind, uh, I could talk a little bit about just uh, the backstory on how this movie came together and uh, talk a little bit about the various drafts. Please do. Yeah, seems like the time. Okay. Uh, you could make a fucking documentary about all of this. So I'll try to go through it as quickly as I can. But I think there is actually, isn't there? Uh, on the Umbrella Factory, I keep saying factory because I think Shout Factory, the Umbrella Entertainment release, there is a pretty long making of feature uh, that goes into a lot of the history of it with a couple of folks from uh, production being interviewed. So oh, I want to say there's probably like an hour out there, maybe, maybe not quite an hour, but like a good 40 minutes of uh, them just saying what they thought the deal was with all this stuff. It's very enlightening. Yeah. Well, it everything began when Roland Joff, the producer of The Killing Fields, which is mentioned in every single bit of promotional material for this movie, and I fucking love that. <laughs> yeah, uh, high on that success was seeing uh, the rise of stuff like Batman. And for reasons I've never seen fully specified thought Mario was just going to be the next ticket to the big time. So in something that boggles the mind to think of today, he just went to Nintendo personally and asked if he could have the rights. Not specifically a, co a company or anything. He's just like, Hey, can I personally make a Mario movie? And they were like, okay. Well, they, they talk about that story in the making of, um, so he said, yeah, I went up there and I said, can I have Mario? And they went, well, what's your pitch? Like, what's your story? And he gave him a rough outline of what he thought it would be. He makes sure to point out what I thought it was then, because obviously that's not what they ended up with. And they went, oh, we like that. But why should we give it to you when there are other people out there willing to spend way more money or who had way more means than you? And he said, well, they're not here right now, are they? <laughs> <laughs> and the people at Nintendo were so happy with that answer, like, oh, the ball's on this guy. They're like, yeah, fuck it, write up the contract, give it to him. He's right, he is here right now asking for it, and they're not. Oh, God, that was a, a big thing about uh, international business culture back then that plays hugely into the history of Mar uh, uh, of Nintendo, is just how difficult Nintendo was to reach at times. 
Because that's the day when people are still communicating over facts and shit. And no one's making a late night cellular telephone call to Japan to talk over character (laughs) designs or something. So a lot of business deals got made by people just putting the legwork into actually going to Japan and talking to Miyamoto and, and Yamauchi. Right. Like it shows you're pretty serious when you're like, I'll take a 14 hour flight to Japan. I'll fucking just do it. It's fine. The the virtual boy happened because an inventor just went up to someone from Nintendo at a convention and had the balls to say, will you buy this ready-made console for me and say it's Nintendo's? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, he, his whole idea is we're going to do a Ghostbusters style like fun for kids and for adults, uh, sci-fi fantasy comedy. He doesn't have like a super like nailed down version in his head, just like this vague outline. So the first writers who are contacted are Tom Parker and Jim Genowine, the people who wrote uh, the Flintstones movie a couple of years later. So uh, people who are very good at making that type of movie, and initially it's Greg Beeman who's attached, the guy who would make Mom and Dad Save the World a couple of years later, which would bomb so hard he would be immediately taken off the project. <laughs> which, <by laughs> Frozen the way, is, and carbonite and sent into space. Is that movie good? I remember trying to watch it as a kid and not getting more than 15 minutes in. I, I've never seen it. It's streaming a few places, I believe. It's one of those movies that haunted basic cable when I was a kid, but just, I I could never get through it. But yeah, their initial pitch is dubbed the Wizard of Oz pitch. And whenever uh, that falls apart with Greg Beeman, that initial fantasy, like faithful to the Mario Super Show pitch then gets abandoned for a pitch by Parker Bennett and Terry Runte, who were picked personally uh, by... (laughs) Sorry, I can never remember these fucking uh, directors' names. By Rocky and Bullwinkle. Uh, They (laughs) picked these (laughs) writers personally because they were attached to... They were attracted to the initial script, but by the time they were looking at it Fantasy seemed like it was out and sci-fi was in. So the bones of that fantasy script were then changed into a sci-fi script, which became known as the Ghostbusters script. (laughs) After that, uh, no one was really happy with that script. So Dick Clement and Ia Lafrenis were hired to write what then became known as the Die Hard script, which was a much harder <laughs> action-oriented script. They I'm then assuming worked... that's where Bruce Willis came into play? Yeah, that uh, that has the infamous uh, John McClane cameo, where Mario and Luigi are going through uh, a ventilation shaft and... John McClane, as played by Bruce Willis, was going to show up to point the, the direction they should go. Which, Which is the only like... joke joke in that entire script, so it's even more out of place. It feels like 
we know this shit ain't getting made, so we're writing this scene in to amuse ourselves, is what it seems like. <laughs> yeah, the, uh, that script was then re uh, revised by the same writers as the Mad Max script, which was uh, still action-focused and like a hard PG-13, but had a lot more uh, sci-fi theatrical stuff in it. This was the one that would have a Mario Kart a demolition derby scene that sounds like something from Fury Road. <laughs> this is the <laughs> script that got all the actors to sign on to the project. This was the semi-prestige Blade Runner cyberpunk movie that they wanted to make. Uh, at this point, the movie was running out of money because of the amount of money they'd sunk into it already. <laughs> So they had to partner with Disney to get it uh, finished and distributed. So that led to what became known as the Disney Princess script, written by Ed Solomon and Ryan Rowe. Which uh, is basically the movie we're watching now, with uh, a couple of things changed around. This was done without the director or cast, or I think even the producer's knowledge. This was basically a complete Disney move. So the directors nearly uh, quit the project based on this, but decided, okay, we've already spent years of our lives developing this. We might as well <laughs> film the damn thing and see if we can wrestle control back. So... As they're filming, Ed Solomon's brought in to do on-set rewrites for a little while. He leaves, and then the directors take Parker Bennett and Terry Runte, who did the second draft, and bring <laughs> them on script, on set, to write further rewrites, undoing Ed Solomon's rewrites, and that's the train wreck we're watching now. Oh, boy. But on the plus side... We got an animatronic Yoshi that's pretty interesting. A weird match, but I, like this is the kind of movie it belongs in. Hyper-realistic Yoshi is both terrifying and adorable. <laughs> also, just the refusal to put the characters just, into their so proper ridiculous. colors. <laughs> they get to it eventually, but they fight like, what should be the most simple thing in the world? Like, hey, have Mario wear a red shirt and blue jeans. What fascinates me is the philosophy, because this is all before no one was really thinking sequels or anything like that. Like this is before that time where franchise wasn't really a thing. So this was like, oh, this is to the directors and to the producers. This was a prequel to the games and the games are what comes after this story. And that fascinates me. I, I hate that thinking so much where it's like, we need to explain why he would ever wear that poncho. It's like, no, you don't. That doesn't need to be part of a prequel. They can just wear their classic shit. I was I always get so frustrated in movies trying to do that shit. Like, it's a setup, huh? Isn't it important we know how this one little fact came to be? It's, no, it's not. Also, boy, I know they joked about trying to push the limits on a PG but the fact that they wrote a script with like strip dancers and then they still film that and everyone, yeah, it's fine. Blows my mind. 
there's there's like an extended bit too where Spike and Iggy go on a long like three minute long rap, and there's clearly strippers behind them doing their thing, and it's it's just fascinating that that was all filmed. They didn't think, hmm, is this a waste of money? Nah, it's a it rap is. from specifically a rap from a family movie. Just with with assless chaps behind them. It's it's like this movie <laughs> defined in a single moment. This movie has it's, hookers in it. Yeah. By the way, uh, Mario uh, getting a big lady's tongue down his throat is in every single draft of this movie. <laughs> that was one of their things. Ass no, seat. this is a fixed point in time. We can't change it. And not, not even the same character either. It's in completely different contexts. There's a handful of moments and jokes that are just artifacted through every single concurrent version of the script. It's it's like the organic web shooters in Spider-Man. It just stuck around for ten years. <laughs> What a scene. What a scene. Just stick your face in there, Mario. Get in. <laughs> I I was really fascinated when uh, I was listening to some interviews with uh, the directors, and they were talking about their, their interest in this project was, we never wanted this to be a family picture. We wanted it to be a picture that families went to, but we wanted them, like, families to go there, and parents would have to explain some of the parts to their kids. Which is fascinating because who pitches a movie that way to any studio? Like, oh, we do not want the children to understand what's happening. A hundred percent, no. We we want this to be a little dark, but not dark enough where it makes the PG thirteen crowd happy. Not light enough to make the PG crowd happy. We want an awful blend. We want a we, mishmash. We, we want we want a page master situation where nobody likes the movie. <laughs> also, I feel like it's very important to point out that when. Uh, Hoskins signed on to the script. That dance scene was with Lena. Because <laughs> Lena is, is, is up until the movie was made, was supposed to be a huge sub villain who had just as much screen time as Koopa. Mm-hmm. Also, Koopa and Lena fuck constantly in the early draft. <laughs> In the uh, Ghostbusters draft that makes the first uh, tone shift, Koopa's introduced answering the door in a in a sex robe, drenched in sweat. Jesus Christ! See, that's that's a very important thing I think needs to be addressed. And like, what wondering why the fuck this movie has this tone? Like the very original draft that the, the the script that's basically just a normal ass Mario movie uh it has a very dark crystal like Jim Henson kind of tone to it a lot of like actors arguing with puppets <laughs> it's like it, it's got like its fair share of dark moments like the hammer brothers are basically the plague from hobo with a shotgun in there Oh it's a shockingly God, metal, It's a shockingly metal Mario movie, but it's still it's very of the late not of the late eighties. Like it feels like labyrinth. And by the time Morton and everyone was attached to it, like that time had passed, and the direct the writers that they hired specifically said they did not like that script. They didn't think 
anything in it went hard enough. It wasn't funny enough, scary enough, weird enough. So they developed an initial uh, script treatment that was an attempt to meld what was in that original draft with more adult humor, with like a sleazier, more uh, Peter Venkman-ish Mario. And, you know, a scarier Koopa and things like that. And they liked that version so much, they said, don't uh, keep as little from the original script as you want. We like (laughs) this movie. Let's just make this and push it further. Which led to the later drafts having virtually nothing to do with Mario and just being... A fa- fair, several versions of a fairly serious uh, sci-fi story because they were actively trying to not be that first initial draft. So, <laughs> so you get this weird game of telephone where everyone's basing what they're doing off of the previous draft, not on anything related to Mario. I want to point out for a second, going back to the idea of this being filmed in an abandoned factory, that makes the throne room make a lot more sense, right? <laughs> I always mm-hmm. wondered what this looked like when he was in power. Like, right, is there a right there? Silo. It's just such a weird, sterile, white, like, it, it, it's, it seems more like a high school gymnasium look than royalty, but all right. And as long as we're talking about tone, we could really hear it a moment ago, the uh, Alan Silvestri score going very high on the wacky fun adventure kind of notes. That's just uh, the from, Mario theme to me. <laughs> from from what I've been uh, – well, from what I've, I've gathered just kind of looking through notes, it sounds like Silvestri was instructed to go that route with the score because they were doing everything they could to lighten it up at the end. So it was an intentional move, not necessarily his input, that gave us that kind of uh, wacky Flintstones score. Yeah, I heard somebody thing. describe it as a knockoff Honey, I Shrunk the Kids score, and I can't unhear it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Wow, yeah. yeah. Oh, and the pizza plot. <sighs> so this is jumping to the end of the movie. The extended word cut has a moment that pays off the pizza gag. There, There's a lot of mention of the pizza throughout the movie. It feels like it should add up to something. In the work print version, as soon as Koopa is destroyed and turned to slime, the pizza driver there drives through the slime and tosses his pizza into the slime. <sighs> it felt and he has so like a one- good to see that finally. Yeah, and he had like a one-liner to be, you know, like, how does that taste? And then drives off. And it's so weird because it completely undercuts everything else in the movie, but it resolves that one stupid joke they've been running with the entire time. I think that I like to think that that is why Mike and I have been obsessed since childhood with supervillains ordering pizzas. <laughs> oh, definitely. <laughs> it all traces back to here. Koopa ordering a pizza is just, he's so excited, which is what I love about it. It's just, he's very personable with the pizza guy, which I enjoy very much. We also have yeah. this plot line, which I don't think, I mean, it's present enough, but I'm sure it was flushed out, flushed out more in uh, other versions, where Luigi is the apprentice to Mario, but whenever he runs into an issue, he has to go to Mario to help him out because he doesn't really know how to be a plumber. And I, the, I think that was supposed to be one of those points that got bolstered a little more in the final picture, and they they chopped it down as much as they could for this. 
That's another thing they get that goes back and forth in the drafts. How passionate Mario is about plumbing and whether or not Luigi wants to be a plumber. <laughs> Which is like a, it was a constant source of debate in the scripting process. There are drafts of this movie where the entire plot seems to revolve around Mario and Luigi's relationship and their unresolved issues with their plumber father. <laughs> and Mario's love of money. Spike said workers' rights. <laughs> I do wonder, though, if... I mean, the movie's already hour 45 long, right? If they kept in that character stuff, would it make the movie better? Or would it just be like, yeah, we get the beats, they make sense, but it's making this thing over two hours long? There's it- no version of the movie they filmed that's good. <laughs> I'm sorry. That's yeah. where I'm leaning on, like, I don't think they were necessarily wrong to cut out a lot of those subplots. Maybe, like, fuck it, we know we're not making Shakespeare here, let's just cut to the chase. I can't let's say that extended bits. work print isn't better, but at the it's same like, time, it, it doesn't need to be, this movie does not need to be over two hours. It's like the Dawn of Justice ultimate cut, like, it's at least a movie. Yeah. Honestly, uh, this movie deserves an award for editing. The fact anything was cobbled together mm-hmm. into any form of coherence is a goddamn miracle. Speaking of, the scripting process was so fucking slapdash that there's a draft that references this scene but doesn't have this scene in it. Jesus <laughs> Christ. I, 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 I do a, love this scene, by the way. Just, the dancing was one of the addition, wasn't it? Because <laughs> on the, the making of feature, they kind of went into this and they decided like, okay, we need them to do something in the elevator. And it made it sound like they were already filming when they decided like, oh, we've got to put something in here for the dance. And so they decided it should be like a snake charm. <laughs> so I, I don't know if this was scripted, Jamie, previously, like the full out scene, or if this was something they just kind of fucked around with, like they knew something went in here and they just pulled it out of their ass pretty close to the day of filming. God, Toad's so happy. By the way, I don't know if you mm-hmm. noticed, but in the elevator scene, you can clearly see that some of the Goombas have ID badges with the photo of them on it. <laughs> so much love and care goes into the Goombas. And they I mean, don't it's a have- really good animatronic face, right? He can do head tilts, his eyes squeeze and stuff. There's emotions there. The eyes move like that's, they that's have a really good enough- mechanical head. Well, they have distinct enough faces so that you can tell them apart. There's a difference between the goom, the Goomba Goombas and the Koopa Troopa Goombas. They're just real. I think that's what's so freaky is they're just kind of, they're real. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's Goro from Mortal Kombat all over again. I saw it as a child, therefore I just assume it's real and I forgive all of its faults. Save me, Lena. You're my only hope. This is a Mario movie. (laughs) Yoshi is about to fuck her up. Sentence I just got to say. (sighs) The fact he still has the tongue, but it's weird and (laughs) tube-like. 
That's how dinosaurs were, right? We'll, we'll go like the dress. She just fucking stabbed Yoshi yeah. in the neck. It's, it's what fine. a movie. God, again, the mo- the script they signed on for was that for two hours. <laughs> just a movie for no one. Oh, is this where the Bruce Willis part would have come in when they're going through the elevator? I believe so. Yeah. The fact they all dance together makes me so happy. I like that this music exists in this dimension. Yeah, elevators there just have polkas. Hmm. He's their leader. Why couldn't there just been more scenes with the Goombas? Why couldn't Goombas gotten a spinoff? <laughs> Why are you running from him? He's being really nice. That was even hot food. Looks terrifying. That uh. What is the term for those type characters? Like there's got to be a stock name for them because they're basically like pain and panic from the Hercules animated movie. I hear them. I hear that type of character referred to as a, a Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, but I don't think that's accurate. I could kind of see it. Yeah, yeah that, that could close. that could fit. It is like the modern day version of it, where it's been <laughs> pared down maybe a little more. Also, Toad being lit on fire. Mm-hmm. I'm the one good Goomba. Why are you doing this to me? I think the entire like creation of this movie can really be summed up with instead of fire flowers, what if it's just a fucking flamethrower? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that that checks out. It makes sense. Mario jumps really high. Mm, what if he loads bullet bills into giant mecha boots that boost him into the air? That's what's cr- crazy is like you expect so much of that stuff to have been like Frankensteined together through pre-production, but pretty much this entire movie's structure, world, the ideas, it all comes from the second draft. That is just such a complete like light switch uh, transition from the first. Like, I... The fact that so much that's weird about this movie was baked in practically from day one blows my mind. It makes me wonder, what was the sci-fi movie you were writing in your head before you were hired to write the Mario movie? (laughs) Because you did not just pull all of this out of your ass. (laughs) I feel like there's this really small but wonderful and odd period between like 92 and maybe 96 or something where you got movies in this vein uh ill-advised would probably be the best term for it but because they have to do everything so practically it becomes a weird fucked up magic trick (laughs) i would i would say like this um judge dread for sure oh yeah well that's maybe even mortal Kombat. although that one uh, really knew it was just it needed to do the action scenes and that was all it really needed so it's probably more successful than this in a lot of ways Oh, that's why as 
uh, as bad as some of them are, I have so much affection for those 90s set porn movies. Like, I, I can never truly dislike any movie where the production team had to make an entire world. Like, n- no one's rushing to go rewatch the Flintstones movie these days, but man, they actually made Bedrock. I mean, I will have you know, Jamie, I bought the Flintstones on Blu-ray uh, last year just so I could marvel at those sets. So there, there's dozens of us. And even like you, you bring up uh, Judge Dredd, that's been on my mind this week. I mean, like, no one's saying that's the definitive Dredd movie, but God, the fact that they made Mega City 1. <laughs> exactly. Like, like, Dredd is the good version of that property. And that's when I want to watch a good movie, I watch that. But every once in a while, I throw in Judge Dredd because I'm amazed by like the giant killer robot puppet they made or, you know, the, the giant sets or all the stupid flying cars and them having to do that with actual real built sets. It's astounding. Not all of it's convincing, but it's, it's just amazing that they had to engineer it all. Well, yeah. you know, I, I'm not, I'm not one to like, go like well before cgi everything was better but there is something to be said now not that the cgi artists aren't incredibly talented but you see studios just like throw pennies at them so they're not actually able to use their full talent unless it's with something very big budget back in the 90s suddenly a lot more money was able to be infused into movies that are like this they're just like these random side throwaway things so you get you know, you go from like Dick Tracy, Judge Dredd, The Shadow, Super Mario, uh, fucking Mortal Kombat, for God's sake. All, all, all of these different things where you have these kind of dog shit movies. Not that everyone I named was bad or anything, but um, but, you know, Judge Dredd is, is a dog shit movie, but it's beautiful for all of the, the craftsmanship, all these insanely talented people going to work and creating something out of nothing. And it's, it's just amazing. So you, it's, it's the difference between like an accidental bad movie and something like a sci-fi original movie that's just made to be bad and be mocked and it doesn't work. Yeah. Like that's one of the reasons, uh, it kind of breaks my heart that so many of these movies ended up, part of the bad movie canon because of uh, early internet movie criticism. Which, you know, people talk a lot about uh, the movie canon and, you know, how that's ultimately subjective and, you know, everyone has their own canon in in their own head. I think the same thing applies to the bad movie canon. I think the bad movie canon that we all seem to have agreed upon can also like be very elitist and very unfair. And I yeah. think that you would, you definitely do yourself a favor by revisiting a lot of those movies that are famous for how they failed, how much they disappointed people, like what epic failures they were. Especially whenever, especially those pre-CGI, like let's just throw a billion dollars at nothing movies. Like 
they have so much raw creativity from people who knew they could get away with anything. <laughs> like yeah, as think- bad as a production of as this must have been to film. Like, God, could you imagine being in the creature shop? For this movie, just giggling and knowing you have a blank check to make the Goombas. You get to decide how gross and ooey-gooey the fungus gets to be this this day. I think a lot of film discourse misses out on not viewing movies like this, both from the past and even modern ones. Um, Look at it and say – and see is the – okay – if it didn't turn out good, if it turned out bad, if it turned out just okay, um, what 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 place is it coming from, though? Is it coming from a pure place? Because I think that's very different. Then you look at the movie like, okay, I accept the movie's quality. What is it? What is it trying to do? And was it doing right, or was it doing that's kind of interesting? And you get that across across the spectrum of movies that are just. Eh, okay, or or horribly bad, or or whatever else. There's there's something to be to be examined about them and actually appreciate whenever they are coming from a from a pure place. I still feel that way about new releases. I have a hunch, and nothing to back this up. This film came from a place of fetish. Someone, one hundred percent, making this movie love slime. They got off on slime, and they made this, this the is a slimiest picture they could. Oh. Boy, someone out here loves it. It's not <laughs> even a good artist. <laughs> oh, don't tell him that. It's going to go in the fridge, buddy. <laughs> Mario gets a zero moment where he's just wearing very weird red and blue overalls. <laughs> Even a simple design is like, just put on blue overalls and a red shirt. Like, no, 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 no. We, we can have make this to make complicated. this complicated. <laughs> yeah, we can't. We can't the do actors, something simple. The actors would be too comfortable in overalls. <laughs> and let's put them in blue for the poster. Uh, also, I, I just w- want to point out that the uh, mattress chase scene that we're about to see was still on the draft everyone signed on for, so they have no fucking excuse. <laughs> Unbelievable. This was Did a direct the Goomba inspiration. Mattress. <laughs> no, the Goomba <laughs> mattress. Direct inspiration, I want to say, for uh, all of the Nintendo 64 like ice sliding scenes. Every time you have to race a penguin, this is where it came from. It's like, Just you Mario saving hookers. <laughs> Just, I love how it just looks like Mario's Dolomite. <laughs> so this police chief character who's given so much screen time for no reason. <laughs> like, he gets so much to do, you're just amazed he doesn't have, like, a cameo name. Like, he's supposed to be a reference to the game somehow. Oh, so several just, like, background characters. Several background characters are credited as like actual game characters because they're people from other scripts that were just kept in as stage direction by the end. <laughs> uh, another pizza reference. So what this really reminds me of, this particular scene, but the movie as a whole, um, 
I just finished reading about uh, Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark, uh, Song of the Spider-Man. And it's it's it feels like the same thing. Like we started with one vision and then uh, they wanted us to make something kind of palatable and we ended up with something no one liked. Just the various versions of it, people being stuck on certain sets and saying, no, 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 we need to keep this. And just being hung up on one weird detail that derails everything else because they can't let it go. But also, God, that that whole play, I'm amazed, happened because Marvel had to sign off and say, yeah, you've got the rights. And they fought him a lot of the time because they're like, isn't this a little too horny? And I'm just amazed at the time Nintendo wasn't on set just watching this going like, what the fuck are we? No. Someone say no. I mean, they learned their lesson. Obviously, Nintendo uh, made a big fuss about everything else they were doing afterwards. But I'm still shocked that in the 90s, Nintendo didn't want to complete control over one of these properties. The fact this wasn't filmed in Hollywood, I think also helped a lot. Yeah. Oh yeah. They were just left to their own devices. <laughs> oh, it's so painful. <laughs> it's just such a weird musical choice for it too. It's very extreme. Listen to that guitar. Whoa! And then this is so legitimately stupid. This feels like it should be part of a Gilgurt commercial. Every part of it. Also, uh, the uh, shopping center reminded me. uh, One of the drafts has Koopa starring in a Nike parody commercial for for the Thwomp boots where he's dressed up like a basketball player. I I wish Dennis Hopper had filmed that so badly. <laughs> Goddamn Goombas. Yeah, I like Mario having the bullet bill uh pack there like uh Dolph Lundgren's Punisher knives. <laughs> That's one of those things where they had to think really hard, like, how are we going to include this weird detail from the game where there's just giant smiley face bullets that fly across the landscape occasionally? Um, they're actually like nitrous pellets that cause the jump boots to work. Sure. Why not? It's a weird detail. I, they get their reference in, I guess, but it feels like such a reach to try and cram that in. I kind of miss the days of like, I mean, it's like, I'm glad it's over, but I also miss the days where that's how adaptions worked. It would just be the most random way to include something. (laughs) Oh God, in the, in the original uh, second draft, they get the thwomp boots almost immediately on entering Dino Hatton and they use them constantly. That would have cost money. I do wonder sometimes, like, what would it have been like if some of my favorite video games from the current age had been adapted in this period? Like, you just imagine them doing Bioshock like this, where they actually have a gigantic warehouse made up as Rapture. But, like, the Big Daddy isn't anything like the Big Daddy of the games. Oh, he, he it's uh, Vinnie Jones. <laughs> <laughs> also, I want to say... Uh... In the script they signed off on, uh, Lena, uh, her role and Koopa's in the third act are reversed, where it's actually Koopa who le- who steals the rock and leaves her behind. 
to uh, activate the meteorite. And when she's chasing after him, the worlds merge and she is teleported into a production of the Phantom of the Opera and is crushed by a chandelier. Oh. (laughs) Okay. I mean, she gets a pretty grim ending in this one where she's just fried into a skeleton. (laughs) So they always Uh, had it out for that character. Something bad was going to happen to her. I love that shot so much. (laughs) Oh, yeah. You can't go wrong with a long tunnel and someone running down it. The best shots in Alien vs. Predator are whenever they're going down that giant ice shaft. I just want you to know uh, I had to get up and let my cat in my office because uh, she was jumping against my office door. So we are now Mike, joined by Jonathan. Mike, you have to trust the fungus! Mike! Mike! Slam against walls. Bafome, do you have thoughts on the Super Mario Brothers movie? Uh, a little closer to the mic. Um, she's going to sleep. <laughs> she's seen it before. She's not missing anything. <laughs> Come on, girls, let's attack! Let's just, let's so just ignore sl- this chick. I so want that electric Koopa fucking Koopa <laughs> with the babies so badly. <laughs> Okay, here we go. What a huge buildup. And the payoff, it's its like, oh god, it's such a good tease. This is another uh, Ed, Ed Solomon edition, which makes all the sense in the world. This is a total movie, noisy right? cricket payoff here. Uh, well, I mean, throughout the movie, they've been teasing like, Mario, there's a thing, the fungus is trying to give it to us. Ah, right, let's go. Luigi finally gets it, gives it to Mario. Mario realizes, I gotta use it. The anticipation, because even the villain backs up and goes, ba-bum, like he freaks out. And then this great twist of the letdown, it falls through the grates. Oh, no. But it keeps walking. And we follow this thing through the entire climax. So you're thinking like, fuck, this has got to be important. Taxi drivers see this thing on the road and they panic. They slam their brakes. You think it's going to be like a nuke. Like it'll just destroy Bowser. And then we just get him knocked off this this tower. Like, he, he gets knocked into the bucket again. Where he was originally! It's it's such a letdown, because everything that leads up to it is such a great tease! Like, pitch-perfect design and everything, and they, they just fumble the ball in the end zone. I want to know, are they falling into that fucking uh, gap between the rocks that <laughs> Mario and Luigi uh, were trying not to fall into? <laughs> oh, it's the, also, it's the angel they uh, they dug <laughs> the up Simpsons. in episode of The Simpsons. I think the same thing every time I see it. Uh, I know from the screenplay that's not her uh, getting electrocuted. She was fossilized by the meteorite, which is gnarlier. I feel so bad for actors when they have to be like, okay, just just pretend there's an ethereal lightning storm and just kind of act against it. Pretend the Enterprise is being hit by photon torpedoes. Yeah, exactly. But they're not even shaking the camera. So poor John Leguizamo is just in the background, like kind of like twitching his body around like, ah, or this. If you see the the work print edition, it's hilarious because they just have to stand there and look at nothing as the CGI (laughs) dissolves around them. It was the only way, Luigi. Dennis Hopper and Bob Hoskins are sharing the screen right now. 
We're merging. Here. That's incredible to me. Okay, guys, remember earlier when I said that uh, in in the other scripts, the Doctor Strange universe that Mario teleports into comes back. Yes. Uh, the entire first half of the third act slobber knocker bat uh, battle between never forget. Between Mario and Koopa is them battling across the multiverse as they keep falling into the void and into various alternate universes where Mario and Luke, Mario and Koopa change shape into whatever the world is. So there's, I think there's like an all plant world where they battle as trees and shit. <laughs> something from the overall fucking Marvel movie and then they land in New York and Bowser has fully formed into the T-Rex and I want to know why they thought they could ever afford any of that <laughs> you know okay couple of thoughts a wow that's literally the scene for multiverse of madness B and my other thought is that also breaks the rule of like the movie itself, which it makes is like, no it's sense. like if Mario doesn't go into the Dino Hatton and change form, so it just doesn't make any goddamn sense. Uh, also, r- real quick, he shrinks. Uh, uh, that fung, uh, the fungus that Mario had, is supposed to become a piranha plant when it's hit by the gun. That's the point of that ah. scene. They just couldn't get the effect to work. It seemed very weird. He just pulled out a bit of mushroom at the last second, like, oh, all right, here we go. And then ah. it gets big for a second. Boom! <laughs> yeah, one thing, from life, the script, one thing I've learned from the script. One thing I've learned from the scripts is seemingly no one working on any of them could agree on what the bomb was called and how it was spelled. <laughs> <laughs> it's a bomb. It's a bow bomb. It's a buh bomb. Everything but Bob Omb. Sucks for bomb. It's if only there was a manual of some kind that had all this shit written down. <laughs> the harmonica will save us. The goombas are dancing. Dennis Hopper punched a bunch of puppets and they fell over. This is still... It sounded like bowling ball pins. Still less embarrassing than anything in Waterworld. <laughs> okay, one thing about Waterworld, because one, I don't think it's... I, I don't love Waterworld. But the moment where they drop the torch down the refinery and there's the guy whose job it is to, to check the oil to see how deep it is, sees the fire go down and just goes... Oh, thank God, before it gets blown up. <laughs> One of the best jokes in any movie, funny or unintentional funny. It's just it's just the funniest thing ever made. This right here sums up 90s movies to me. Oh, my God. Koopa's about to have the coolest final transformation ever, and it's over. There you go. Oh, they're devolving him, and he gets blown sky high, but not killed. But I really want to see that puppet up close. Uh, they have some good shots of it in the making of featurette, so you can you can get a decent glimpse of it. And then he comes out, and they just devolve him more. It's like they didn't need to blow him up; they were already doing that. 
I'm so mad because it was such a good setup. With this head of a T-Rex, I think. It looks kind of cool, I guess. Yeah, I mean, you can see it from the side a little better. And it seems a little more Koopa-y. They don't have the big shell on him. Uh, goodbye, booger. Time for some necro goo, indeed. And this is the exact moment when the pizza guy drove by and threw the pizza down. There wasn't a break or anything. Like, the cheering didn't start. That fucking delivery guy was on top of that as soon as he was slime. <laughs> He's awaiting no in the wings. Tip. And it, it's such a weird, like, they could have finessed that more, I guess. It's the work print, so I'm sure they would have edited into a more manageable bit. <laughs> it's still, like... I can see why they dropped it. I, I'm surprised they didn't drop all the other pizza references, though, when they decided to cut it from the ending. When it ends with Mario and Luigi dick to dick. It's very strange <laughs> to me. No, it's more efficient. They can wave to everyone. I guess they could have gotten butt, butt to butt. But this does end on. like fucking Flash Gordon. Yeah! It really does. <laughs> there was only one bad guy in the regime. Yay, we're free! Now we can go back to this industrial city ruled by a medieval king. They've already mentioned... Uh, okay, so here's my fun fact. I did some research here. Lance Henriksen took this role. One, watch, second. Pua! That was his idea, to the uh, stuff flying out of his lungs. Mm-hmm. When he read the script, he said, Well, I bet I've been a fungus for a long time. I bet I got some fungal stuff in my lungs. And he asked someone on the crew to get him Rice Krispies. So he just watered him up and put him in his hand and then did that fake cough so he could throw him out. And that was him expelling the fungus from his lungs. That's delightful. <laughs> uh, he took the role as a favor to one of the producers. He didn't say which one. He just said the producer. Uh, because the producer had previously gotten him a job in Australia. I couldn't figure out what movie that was, to be honest. I was trying very right. hard. But previously, he had gotten a job from the, uh, the producer. The producer says, hey, can you do me a favor? I need you for one day to be the king in my Super Mario movie. And he's like, yeah, of course. Yeah, you help me out, I'll help you out. Essentially, the Cotton Weary situation in Scream. Uh, so he showed up for his one day. While he was getting set up, he said, uh, one of the stagehands, uh, might have been a stagehand, he didn't specify what their role was on the set. He saw a very beautiful woman, and a year and a half later, he said he married her. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> this movie brought Lance Henriksen together with his second wife, uh, Jane Pollock, they were married from 1995 to 2006. So, if nothing else, the Super Mario movie makes lovers. So, two things happened. So, it start, it got Lance Henriksen laid. And two, it starts the proud tradition of someone just asking Lance Henriksen, can you be in my movie? And he'll be in it. <laughs> <laughs> Why not? You did me a favor, I'll do you a favor. Eh, I got nothing going. And that's how he fought Pinhead that one time. <laughs> that was probably a little more than one day, though. <laughs> okay, a, a, it amuses me, Yoshi waving. They've never <laughs> met Yoshi up until this point. So he's doing the baby them, Yoda, that like he's just friendly to everybody. Wild. <laughs> <laughs> They've seen a lot of dinosaurs. It's okay. Just a it's... tiny, tiny T Rex thing waving at them. That's not weird. <laughs> God, his so legs. It, in... 
In Solomon's draft, one of the reasons it's called the Disney Princess draft is because uh, Daisy cannot survive without the pendant. So she's like, she's like Sleeping Beauty for most of that screenplay. It's like this wilting uh, flower who can't leave the chamber without it, and that's why she has to stay behind at the end. It does seem a little weird they did like the Spider-Man 1 sad romantic ending. Although they, they undo it right away by having her pop back up in action hero form. Yeah, fucking last minute scene, I think that was one of the last things they shot. Because <laughs> for some reason they thought they might have a sequel. Oh, this was called the uh, Back to the Future ending. Um, it's also like in um, work print and stuff. Um, the temp score is just the Back to the Future score from that <laughs> final scene. Um, and once again, I think it's interesting that this isn't from a time where sequels really happened. It was just like, and then the adventure continues. <laughs> And I kind of miss when movies would do that. Like, we don't intend to do any of this. We just like <laughs> ending this with the promise that they go on to do shit. They had more fun later. Don't worry about it. Uh, to, to go to that ending, one of the things that always has annoyed me, you know, it's like Spielberg said at the end of Jaws, like, was it realistic that the shark blows up with the air tank going? Maybe not. But people have been so into the movie, they want to see that explosion and they'll forgive the logic. To this end... We have like all the big Koopa stuff go down. We have Daisy show up as like a Mad Max character. And Mario's big scene ending line is, oh, I believe. And it feels like, <laughs> like, fuck, that's it. Like you don't have like a good quip or a one liner. Mm. That's the opposite of the shark blowing up. Fuck. I've been waiting for two hours for you to do something cool. It'd be like, you know, throw out a Mario catchphrase and I believe. <sighs> oh, hey, Louis D. Esposito. <sighs> I have been obsessed since childhood with the transition from Sylvester's score into Almost Unreal by Roxette. <laughs> it's kind of beautiful. I still listen to the song all the time. I'm not going <laughs> It's magical. I'm mad this, is this soundtrack is good. sounds like. <laughs> so as long as you're is... talking about credit, credit music, does anyone know what Walk the Dinosaur actually means? I assume some sort of sex thing. Hey, me too. But I like I put out the lyrics and I'm just like trying to read through this and be like, what? It was a night like this 40 million years ago. I lit a cigarette, picked up a monkey skull to go. The sun was spitting fire. The sky was blue as ice. I felt a little tired. So I watched Miami Vice. I don't I don't think he's saying anything there. It doesn't even sound like sex is involved. Those are just words. Maybe maybe the second verse. I met you in a cave. You were painting on the wall. I said I would be your slave. Follow you wherever you go. The night we split a rattlesnake and danced beneath the stars. You fell asleep. I stayed awake and watched the passing cars. I walked the dinosaur. Woo. I walked the dinosaur. Yeah. Open the door. Get on the floor. Everybody walk the dinosaur. That's, I don't know what that means. Like, I'm assuming that, they fucked when they, they were in the cave, but, like, now there's cars he's watching? That is a song written thanks to drugs. <laughs> That's what that is right there. 
Shadows from the sky, much too big to be a bird, a screaming, crashing noise, louder than I've ever heard. It looked like two big silver trees that somehow learned to soar. Suddenly a summer breeze and a mighty lion's roar. I walked the dinosaur. Woo. I walked the dinosaur. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Okay, Tarzan boy makes more sense. I, and then the rest of the lyrics after that are just open the door, get on the floor, everybody walk the dinosaur a bunch of times. Um, and then an adapted version from George Clinton to try and make this more Mario appropriate. Uh, the goom goom aka like a goomba repeated like 18 Which times. Which makes it better. <laughs> and here I always thought that was just a song about the day-to-day life of a dinosaur. So like the dinosaur in your mind was walking another dinosaur? Or, or 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 who was walking the dinosaur? No, the the dinosaur was walking the dinosaur. It was like a keep on trucking kind of thing. Mm. Look, that is the beat of a song that's all about how cool it is to be a dinosaur man. <laughs> <laughs> also, we're we're about to go into the after credit scene that this movie has. And I'm fascinated yes. that this and Street Fighter both have after credit scenes when those weren't things. <laughs> uh, the gag that's being used here of uh, Japanese executives coming to Iggy and Spike to option their story for a game is how every script past the second one ends. But the difference is... Uh, up until this point, the ending was Iggy and Spike putting on white overalls and going to work at the Super Mario Brothers Plumbing Company, which is now being funded by Scapelli in exchange uh, as a reward for rescuing Daniela, who also buys them a tricked out plumber mobile like the Ghostbusters. <laughs> Which I love because Iggy and Spike working at the company is already just ripping off my, uh, Ghostbusters 2. <laughs> uh, in the work print edition on the Umbrella disc, that same, same scene happens, but it gets a couple of extra lines where it goes back to the Japanese executive, executives and they're basically like, Ugh, these jerks, can you believe they call it after themselves? And uh, it basically goes to them being like, let's go find the Mario Brothers. <laughs> So I love that even the work print, like, extra scene that they had to throw in at the end is, like, had to be chopped down. They had to cut parts of that out because it got too long and silly. And, Jerry, do you want to explain the filmed ending that actually had this movie make sense? Yeah. According to Rocky Morton, the other version of that scene that they did apparently film that has never surfaced in any like work print, any deleted scene, anything was Mario and Luigi relaying the story of the film to the executives who then misunderstand everything they've said and instead pitch back to them the plot of the Mario Brothers games, which is supposed to be the explanation for why it's nothing like the video games. The video games are a mistranslated version of real events. Which is also a great accidental video game localization joke. <laughs> like, if you're going to keep that extra scene at the end, 
I would say go all the way out and clear yeah. that. I would I would rather have them do that than the stupid joke with Spike and Iggy. It would have been so much funnier. Not that I don't love hearing Supa Koopa Cousins I know. said out loud. <laughs> I was going to say, I do love that that is the final thing spoken in this film. The Supa Koopa Cousins. So I want someone to mod the original game to be that. You know, why doesn't Nintendo just make those? They've got Captain Toad, Treasure Tracker, all those other little side games. It's about time. I think we deserve this. Make the indomitable spike, please. (laughs) Publish Psycho Waluigi, damn it. Uh, Well, folks, we've reached the end of the movie. I don't know about you. I have trusted the fungus. Uh, In 24 hours, I may be dead from the fungus. So we'll see if my faith is reward or not. But thank you so much for joining us. This has been A Bop and a Tragedy. If you want to find more Box Office Pulp, you can find us on boxofficepulp.com. We are on iTunes. We're on Spotify. Wherever you find your music, podcasts, whatever. We're around. Just look for us. Just under some rocks like a cockroach. Would you say like a mushroom? It's a good thing there's no webcam on this or you just see me giving you fucking laser eyes, Jamie. Just mm, No. Not one bit like a mushroom. God. There's so much hate right now. That's not trusting the fungus at all, Cody. I feel itchy already. It would be the funniest goddamn thing in the world if I died from mushroom poison. (laughs) Because (laughs) this was your last. Because I I made a cocktail, an intentionally bad cocktail for the Super Mario Bros. movie. (laughs) The movie's final victim. (laughs) I ain't even mad. It's just funny. Uh, Me having to explain that at your funeral would honestly make it worth it. I hope it's so bad it has to be a closed coffin. They're like, oh, Jesus Christ, he swelled up. He looks like something out of The Last of Us. <laughs> well, uh, we always thought that the what would finally bring you down would be a Muppet Man-related uh, catastrophe, but I don't know. Uh, you going down because of a bop drink makes more sense. I mean, if I'm picking how I want to go, it'd be Muppet Man. But if I'm being realistic, it's going to be the Koopa Juice. Koopa Juice. Well, that's Koopa the name juice. of the drink now. I'm sorry. Yeah, the name. <laughs> well, folks, I think that's it. This has been Box Office Pulp. Thank you so much for listening. That's a wrap. Get the hell out of here. Love those puns. You get more out of life when you go out to a movie. Please remember to replace the speaker on the post when you leave the theater. What you should have done is you should have named the drink the Henriksen. Because <laughs> technically, that's what you're drinking. You're drinking Lance Henriksen, and that's the dream. You're, you've you always the wanted body of to our drink savior. Lance Henriksen. Yeah. So yeah. there you go. My own personal Jesus. Just Henriksen right on your tongue. You're my personal Henriksen. What a weird after credit scene. What do you how how salty do you think Lance Henriksen is? Very. Oh, he's yeah, yeah, yeah. Very, yeah. very salty. Like, um, like roasted seaweed. Mm. I'm delicious. Like, we all agree on this. Yo, I, yeah. Anyways, that's my pitch for Yellow Jacket season three. I don't know how it connects to the larger story yet because I haven't seen season two, but this is where I want it to go. Pumpkinhead's a good movie. This is Box Office Pulp Guy, and this has been a Pulp Podcast production. Now please, 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 
put a gun in my mouth and pull the trigger and say goodnight. And now, on with the show.